Bibles, if you have them, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 today, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, but we're taking a, just a brief detour today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm so grateful for your generosity. Uh, yesterday, we were able to serve you know, over 225 individuals through our outreach center, so thank you for giving. We were able to serve that many families and individuals yesterday. Such a gift. Now, look, we're talking today about a grace-filled church, and we've discussed the last three weeks uh, a confession and the call, but here is the commitment. A grace-filled church uh, and their commitment. Now, I, when it comes to giving, and I know you're, this may be your first time here, and like every time I come, he talks about giving. Well, it's the first time, so here we are. But I always fall into two categories of legalism when it comes to giving, I just generally drift not towards liberalism, but towards legalism. That's just my personal drift. You may drift into liberalism, uh, liberalism, that's your thing. I generally fall myself into the legalism category. Here's what I mean when it comes to giving. Growing up, I saw giving as you paying a God tax. You gave God 10%, that's what he required, that's what it cost to live in his kingdom. You gave him 10% and then you could do whatever you wanted to with the 90%. That's dangerous kinds of thinking when it comes to the tithe. Now, tithe is an Old Testament uh, institution that God had placed in so that people would understand the rhythm and routine of giving unto the Lord a portion of what they'd been given. But in the New Testament, we don't see the 10% as the ceiling of our giving. We see it as the floor of our giving. But, but growing up, I saw it as you just give God 10, he'll bless you tenfold because that's what the mentality was too. And you'll hear preachers say, you can't outgive God. Well, yeah, you can't outgive God. But the mentality was this prosperity thinking of, you know, you give God 10%, he's going to give you 100fold. And I thought, look, that's a good trait. But it becomes a sense of legalism that if I just give God 10, he'll be happy with me and we can move on our very way. But there's another type of legalism when it comes to giving. And I began to pick this up in college because I had taken one finance class at a Christian school. So I thought I knew everything. And I went to this class and the mentality began to creep up in me that, that consumer church was awful and bad and we didn't need chairs. We could just sit on the floor. We could just pull out blankets and just sit there. And all the other monies that we took could be given to international missions. It sounds great. And I began to, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to walk with no shoes for a while because, you know, I, I can take those shoes and give them to somebody else who needs them. Or I can, if I didn't use hot water, see, now it gets real serious. I don't use hot water, I can use the difference of my electricity bill so I can give it internationally and I became a, a legalist when it came to using all my income, disposable income, whatever that is, and I could give it all to international missions or to ministry. It's a different type of legalism, but it's a legalism nonetheless. Because the Bible doesn't talk about these two types of things being the area of which you ought to be giving, it talks about something far greater, it talks about you giving from your heart. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is second letter to the church in Corinth, he's going to highlight for them why we ought to be a grace-filled church. And a grace-filled church is a church that gives generously. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be starting in verse 1, reading all the way through verse 15. But if you're there, will you say word? We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia during a severe trial brought by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme.
extreme poverty. Do you see that? Overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves, this is key, first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urge Titus, just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in the act of grace. I am not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. Verse 9, for you know the grace of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving advice because it is profitable to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. The major theme throughout this text is our first point, that God is generous. God is generous. The nature of who God is is that he is a generous God. We're going to see this throughout our text. We see it particularly in verses 1 and 9. Now, to understand this, you have to know that when Paul wrote the first letter to the church in Corinth, things weren't going well. I mean, if you just go and read 1 Corinthians, you'll find that the, the, the churches in Corinth were having a massive struggle with doing the right thing. They just weren't upholding true biblical values. They weren't honoring Christ with their lives. They were having conflicts internally over some very transparent Obviously evil things. They were being wicked. And Paul writes this very strong worded letter. But if you read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you find that all of his words were, were just lathered with grace. He highlights that the grace of God had been shown to them. And, and he, he now is writing this letter in 2 Corinthians. And things have improved. And he's writing to them, appealing to them that they should also be generous. And he's going to use a particular church or a set of churches in a region, the Macedonian region. And Macedonia was, was three different areas. It was Philippi, Thessalonica, but also Berea, or the Bereans, you might recall. These areas were a, a location of which Paul is going to not just give them as, as some strong words about how they ought to be living their lives with their with their with their monies, but he's also giving them an example of somebody who is giving generously. And before he tells them why, he's telling them their motivation. He, the motivation, you can see it in verse 1, the motivation is the grace of the Lord. He says, brothers and sisters, you know about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. The reason why Macedonia, and we'll get to some specifics in a minute, but the reason why they're able to give is because of the grace of God. You will not and cannot be a generous person until you've understood how much you've been given generously by God. Our giving is always a response to the generosity of God. Our giving is always a response to the generosity of God. 
And that generosity comes from his grace. So skip down to verse 9. You say, why are you skipping all these verses? I'll get back to them. Don't worry. But in verse 9, I think it's the the cornerstone of understanding the grace of God in this passage. Look what he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of God. So he's talking to who? He's talking to believers. This This is grace that is being discussed to believers. You know the grace of God. And then he does something great here. He defines it for us, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He highlights here the grace of God, and he defines it in some simple terms. He says, you know the grace of God. God was rich. Have you ever had your children ask you, Daddy or Mommy, are we rich? And you pause and you think about it. In your mind, you're just thinking monetarily. Now listen, if we live in America and you compare ourselves to maybe somebody in Malawi, Africa, yeah, we are rich. However, if you compare ourselves to anyone in the world, did you know that in America we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world? Even those that are the most destitute and poor are rich when it comes monetarily. You are rich. But none of our wealth compares to the wealth of Jesus. Jesus in heaven has all of heaven to himself. He he owns it all. In fact, look what he says. Look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, for everything. What? Everything. Everything. Guess what? The Greek word for everything is everything. Good. For everything was created by him. Who's the him? The him is Jesus in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, again, all things, everything have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. What's the point? The point is, is that God is the richest ever. Elon Musk is not in the same category as Jesus Christ. There's no way. You say, well, he's got some money. Yeah, he's lost some, but he's got some, thanks to Twitter. But Jesus is the creator of everything. Abraham Kuyper says it this way, there's not one square inch in all the universe that God doesn't look at it and say, mine. Jesus is infinitely wealthy, Paul tells us here in Colossians 1 that he, everything was created through him and for him. In fact, when, when the angels appear here on earth, when Jesus is born, I know it's Christmas time. We got Thanksgiving and then it'll be Christmas, but you have this moment where the angels appear to the shepherds at night. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest peace on earth and goodwill to men. Even the angels are saying, we recognize that Jesus is in a whole other category. Paul says in verse 9 here that the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is this, that while he was, though he was rich, Jesus wasn't just rich, he was exceedingly rich. Like excessively rich. Like there's no comparison to his wealth. Jesus was extremely rich wealthy. So the grace of God is begun by being described as the wealth of God. But look what it continues to say in verse 9. 
for our sake, what happens? He became poor. Jesus comes not to, and he says it from his own word, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. That's what he says in the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus, being a king, owning everything, the owner of everything, the creator of the universe, angels worship him. The rocks, if nobody cries out, the rocks will cry out. He owns everything, and yet when he comes to earth, he doesn't flutter down in a white robe and a harp. He comes as a helpless baby. Jesus comes, and he comes in poverty. He comes as a servant, a carpenter. He's a blue-collar guy. He doesn't have an office at the top in the corner. He, he is serving. Jesus in his poverty. And Jesus, you know, you find Jesus throughout the Bible, and Jesus is always borrowing something. You know, when you can't afford something, you look to see if you can borrow something, right? Jesus borrowed a coin to pay taxes. Remember? He even uses a fish that would swallow a coin. <laughs> Jesus borrowed a Lunchable to feed 5,000 and 4,000. Or... or <laughs> A deconstructed sandwich, a charcuterie board. That's what it is. It's when I don't want to make you a sandwich, make your own. Here it is all out in the plate, right? Okay, y'all get that next week, I guess. Jesus borrows a donkey to ride in when they all cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Right? Jesus borrows a tomb. Jesus says, those that follow me, they may not have a place to lay their head. Jesus comes in poverty. Jesus has excelled in being poor. So Paul describes the grace of God as this. Though he was rich, though he owned the cattle on a thousand hills, though he it's the creator of everything. Though he was the king, he, all the thrones and dominions, everything was made through him and for him, both the things you can see and the things you cannot see. All of it he made, and yet for your sake he became poor. And then there's this other part to this, which describes the grace of God, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now here's the danger in this portion of the text. You might read that and think it applies differently than what it actually means. And so often, notoriously, preachers will misapply, or people who read will misapply. They'll go, oh, so because Jesus was financially poor, therefore, I will be financially wealthy. And that is a misapplication of this text. See, okay, Jesus was poor, and therefore, you're going to be rich. And then the scribe's saying, based on your level of wealth, will indicate God's love for you. Well, there's lots of problems with that kind of theology. But here's the deal. That's not talking about monetary. We always think monetary. So when my children say, Daddy, are we rich? I should be able to say to them, we are abundantly and excessively rich. How, Daddy? Well, I'm not talking about money, kids. I'm not talking about cars. I'm not talking about home. I'm not talking about our mutt of a dog called a golden doodle. It's just an expensive mutt. I'm not talking about those things, kids. I'm not talking about food. I'm not talking about clothes or shoes. or any, I'm not talking about any of that. 
because we're a recipient of the grace of God, we are abundantly and excessively rich. Why? We didn't deserve any of it, but God, because he loves us, because he came for us, for our sake, he became poor so that we could be rich because Jesus didn't just borrow a coin. Jesus didn't just borrow a Lunchable. Jesus didn't just borrow a donkey. Jesus didn't just borrow a tomb. He actually took on all of your sin. He took all of your sin and he bore it on the cross. Some, he, he who, this is what Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus didn't just borrow a coin, a lunchable, a donkey, a tomb. He also took on all of your sin. That's why when we sing the old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. I just became hick. Count your blessings. When you count your blessings, you're naming them one by one, and you're not talking about your groceries, and you're not talking about your cars, you're not talking about your clothes. When you count your blessings, you're just naming the grace of God and saying, oh, I am blessed because I've received his grace. And so Paul says, this church in Macedonia, they are generous because God is generous. God was generous, and he, he doesn't just give 10% of his blood to you. He gave 100% of it. He didn't say, well, just here's a little, a sprinkling, and this will do you some good. It's all in. It's why I'm a firm believer in believer's baptism, by the way. You say, well, that's, not, that's a weird tie-in. Look, they always say, preachers always say, it keeps a lot of water to make a Baptist and a little water to keep them away. But I'm, I'm an all-in kind of guy. And when I say all-in, I'm meaning that we immersed because we're realizing that we are now dead to sin and when we come up, we're raised to a new life. And so whatever day you're going through, whatever's happening in your week and you're dreading seeing your family or extended family or the family that's the small print that your wife didn't tell you about that you had to be nice to, that's gonna show up with a fruitcake and not just talking about the pie. Oh, see, yeah. But you stand there and you go, I can relate to anybody because the grace of God, his poverty has made me rich in grace. And so when I sit back and count my blessings, I go, God has been exceedingly and excessively given me so much in his grace, for by his grace you are saved. And so he says, hey, God is generous. Therefore, your life should reflect his generosity. And that's why he immediately begins to apply this generosity in the example of the churches in Macedonia. Look what happens in verse 2. Go back to verse 2. During a severe trial, severe trial, we know not in America severe trials. We stub our toe and we feel like, y'all pray for me. Not sure I'm going to make it. What were the trials? Well, in three instances, we find in Acts 17 where Jason and other brothers and sisters were actually literally drug out and beaten because they were claiming Jesus is king. I mean, just imagine someone bursting through the back doors and, and they begin to drag out those who are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the situation. That's the kind of severity they were facing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about how when they received the Holy Spirit, they endured great persecution. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians, again, this is the church in Thessalonica. You see the same thing where he's instructing them and talking about how they've endured such trials. And then in 2 Thessalonians, you see the same thing. 
All of this was brought about by their affliction. This affliction literally means to be crushed like a grape. But notice that their generosity was not dictated by their circumstances or their affliction. Their generosity was dictated by the generosity that they had received from the Lord Jesus Christ. The generosity that they had experienced was in response they were giving was in response to the generosity that they had received. And despite the severe trials, see, we, we go through a bad moment of our days and go, I'm out. But here they're experiencing it and they're pressing in. They say their affliction and, but they, their abundant joy. That means that they were giving joyfully. In fact, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, it'll say that God loves a cheerful giver. The word literally means, it's literally translated hilarious. Sound familiar? God loves when you give hilariously. Like you should, when you're praying, Lord, what should we give? And he tells you that you give something, you should go, that's hilarious. You want me to write that check? Yes, yes, he says to us. That's hilarious. But you do it with joy. They were with joy. And they're, again, there's it is, extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity of their part. They were experiencing affliction, they were experiencing poverty, and in their abundant joy, they just gave. This is the Macedonian church. God is generous, and they were generous. But look what happens in verse 3. It says that, Paul says, I testify that according to their ability, and even beyond their ability of their own accord, this is how they were giving. Notice Paul doesn't highlight, well, they gave 11%. So I'm celebrating that. It's saying, no, no, according to whatever they were given, they gave, that's just what they gave. They just gave what they could. This is the mentality of those in Macedonia. And Paul is highlighting this to the church in Corinth for a particular reason. But I think he highlights it to us to say, look, you've got to figure out what is our ability. Let's give in that way. A grace-filled church is not giving in comparison to somebody else. A grace-filled church is going to be judged based on what they have the ability to do, and that's what they ought to give. And so, he says they gave according to their ability. But then he even says beyond their ability. How were they able to give beyond their ability? Because God always supplies our needs. How? According to his riches and glory. And all of those are found in Christ Jesus. So they're able to give even beyond their ability. Notice it doesn't say that they were able to retain beyond their ability. It says that they were even to be able to give beyond their ability of their own accord. He'll repeat that in verse 12 if you see. But in verse 4 he says this. They begged us earnestly for the privilege. See that? of sharing in the ministry of the saints. The church in Macedonia was not, Paul didn't have to plead with them to give. He didn't have to beg them to give. He didn't have to say, hey, you really should think about doing this. They said, we wanna help. How can we help? What can we do? They were generous. They just wanted, Paul, please help, allow us to help in this process, to get the gospel. Where would you be without the grace of God? The answer is actually quite simple. You'd be in the same place the rest of the world is in apart from the grace of God. 
you'd be exactly where the rest of the world is at. And that shouldn't make you feel pride and arrogance and say, look, the grace of God is all my life. No, it should make you humble and grateful and eager to worship the Lord. They begged, how can we play a part? We want to play a part, Paul. Let us know. Please let us have the privilege of joining in on taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Please let us participate. Please let us take a part. We want to be part of this. Please, I'm begging you. Please, Paul. So you see in verse 5, and they didn't just give as we had hoped. So even Paul was, was hoping that they would respond this way. Instead, they gave themselves, watch this, first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Giving is always an act of worship. Giving is always an act of worship. And listen, but you give first yourself to the Lord, and then he will make it clear what you ought to give when it comes to monetary. You give yourself first to the Lord and say, Lord, whatever it is you would have for me to do, whatever it is you want me to be, I want to be who you want me to be. You give your first to the Lord. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, he'll tell, he'll tell us this is our act of worship. So the church in Macedonia, they were giving of themselves to the Lord first. And an outflow of that was that they were then giving themselves to God's will, which was to help these churches in Corinth hear the gospel. How will they know unless someone is sent? And so Paul is telling them, hey, you're, the generosity that you're experiencing, church in Corinth, is because God was generous towards you, but also towards the church of Macedonia, and they in turn were generous towards you. The aftershocks of your salvation will be that you will give yourself generously, but you will give yourself sacrificially. They gave, and they gave beyond. They gave their all unto the Lord. So God is generous, and then they were generous, but then Paul begins to turn the tide a little bit, starting in verse 10. And there's an application he gives to the church in Corinth. He begins to lay out for them that they are to be generous, or maybe we could say we are to be generous. Verse 14, he says this, at this present time, your surplus is available for who? Their need. So that their abundance may in turn meet your need and in order that there may be equality. What's he saying to them? He's saying church in Corinth. He's saying right now you have a surplus. You have an abundance. You have more than you could ever imagine. And my challenge to you, church in Corinth, this is what Paul's saying to the church. He's saying you, you need to then in turn give. Now is your time to give. And then in verse 15, he quotes from Exodus chapter 16, verse, I mean chapter 14, verse 16. He's saying there when they were gathering, gathering up the manna that everybody had what they needed. When, when we live sacrificial lives, when we understand the grace of God, how generous he is towards us, and we see the model of the Macedonian churches, they were generous. We then are to be generous as well. And that's his challenge to the church in Corinth. Hey, you ought to be generous as well. You then, you then need to give now for their need. Because remember, Macedonia was not a wealthy place like Corinth was. Ma Macedonia was impoverished because of war, because of famines, because of conflicts. They didn't have what the churches at Corinth had. 
Paul is saying, it's not about the stand, how much you, you necessarily have. It's just about your heart behind it. So you need to give yourself first to the Lord. And you have a surplus. And you should give. Now, I don't want to draw the hard line too fast to application, but here's just a few things we need to think about in this moment. We need to remember that true giving begins with the grace of God. In this season, you're going to be asked by a lot of different organizations to give. I mean, even here at this church, we've got Zoe's Place, we've got the Heatons, we've got Outreach Center, we've got regular tithes and offerings, just regular giving. We've got all these different things to give to. Christmas blessings is started, so if you want to give gifts to families in our, in our community, our area that need to get, we have a table set up, there's going to be lots of opportunities for you to give, but true giving begins with the grace of God. You don't do that out of obligation or pressure. You do it because you've experienced his grace. Secondly, when we receive generously, we ought to respond with generosity. When we receive generously from the Lord, we ought to respond with generosity. When you've been a recipient of his grace, you ought to respond by being generous towards God. But then lastly, we, we, we really do need to follow the Holy Spirit in all of these things. Look, I grew up Baptist. I mean, nine months before I was out of my mother's womb, I was in a Baptist church. I remember I shared that one day, and a deacon didn't believe me, not here at this church, because y'all are trustworthy and believe things. But a deacon walked up to my parents when they visited, and they said, is it true that y'all were in a church when, before my, the pastor was born? They're like, yes. I was like, well, I want to see, see the membership records. I mean, it's just insane. But nine months before I was born, I was in a Baptist church. I've grown up in Baptist churches all my life, and I was scared of the Holy Spirit because I learned them as the Holy Ghost, and I didn't want anything to do with ghosts. But when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you trust him with your life, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. The Father sent the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit magnifies the, the name of Jesus, and Jesus glorifies the Father who is in heaven. The Trinity is at work. The Spirit is inside of you when you are a believer. You don't have to have a second blessing or second baptism of the Spirit for that to happen. It happens immediately when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I say all that to say that in you right now, the Holy Spirit instructs you, teach you teaches you, corrects you, and he uses primarily his word to do that very thing. But when it comes to giving, we ought to follow the Holy Spirit. So there's always three groups of people in every room like this. There's those who have been regular givers, and we are so grateful for you. You regularly give to the Lord. You give an above and beyond. Oftentimes you give above and beyond to other ministries and missions, and I'm so, so grateful for you. Here's my challenge if you're a regular giver. And we sent a letter out to all of you this last week about that. If you didn't receive a letter, maybe because you've not been in this category. But in this category, we've done it for our own lives. Lord, what is it that you would have our giving be? We've become so routine with it that we forget it's an act of worship. Lord, this is a gift to you, to use as you so design. You just begin to pray. Lord, what is it that you would have us give? Ask him of that. But then there's a group in here that never give. You say, man, that's pretty straightforward. I can't believe you'd say that. It's just, it's just the facts. In any given church, all across America, all across the world, there's those who, who do not. Not because they cannot, they just don't. My challenge to you is just to begin somewhere. Just start. I don't have much. Just ask the Lord, what is it that we ought to give? 
And you just begin wherever you're at. Just begin and see what God does in your life. But then there's another category of people. You ever been at a place and they, you've ordered, you've walked to the aisle, you've ordered the food, you then afterward have to go pick up your own food after they call your name, like a, and they turn it around and say, what kind of tip do you want to give? You, you know what I'm talking about? Now, you're about to see the stinginess, right? I think you should always be generous in your tips, okay? But there's this thing inside of me that just cringes going, what did you do? Like, I ordered. I had to stand when I ordered. Then I had to get my own food. Like, what, what happened? What? Okay, you get my point. And the argument is, we cooked it, <laughs> and we got it right, and that's good, and you should be generous. But often, I will sometimes feel like giving a tip, and sometimes I don't feel like giving a tip. You ever been there? I don't feel like giving 10% or 20% or sometimes 80%. I don't feel like it. And often, we'll treat God the same way. I'll give when I feel like it. It's the same moxie that we would use when we were young, and we were talking about having children, and we said, well, we'll, we'll have kids when we have enough money. Anybody else? Anybody else do that? And guess what? You never have enough money. You just don't. And so in all of this, you have to realize that God is calling us to something beyond us. And many of us become double-minded in our giving. We become double-minded because we long to be generous, but not that generous. It's like the guy who was at the coffee shop, and he was driving up to the window, and he says, I want to I you know, pay it forward, and so I want to pay for the person behind me. How, how much was the bill behind me? And the clerk says, $47. And he goes, how much for the car behind them? Well, $7. I'll pay for them, right? Now listen, in a talk like this, you might say, well, why are you talking about all this? Because I just know as a church, there's several opportunities for us in the future to do great things for the kingdom of God. And God is working on your heart right now to do what you can do according to your ability to give unto him. And all of it is tied to our hearts. May we be single-minded in our pursuit. A grace-filled church has received God's generosity of grace. And therefore, we ought to extend that by being generous towards him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we know that this is evidence of your grace towards us. You love us. You care for us. And now, Lord, as we respond to you, help us to be the people that you've called us to be and do the things you've called us to do. And Lord, as this is settled on some hearts, and maybe it came as a hard word, would they receive it? Lord, there's some that this has been a good word, a good reminder. May you, may they receive it. But Lord, for each of us, may we settle in our hearts what you have called us to give and to be and to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're physically able and willing, will you stand as we respond together?